do you respond when you hear about the end of the world as we know it? Do you believe it or ignore it? Why would you believe it or why would you ignore it? Does it, does it depend on who is saying it to you? And I was thinking about this at the start of the week as uh, Sir David Attenborough the famous BBC, BBC presenter stood up at the UN Climate Change Summit in Poland and he warned about the end of the world as we know it. This is what he said. Right now we're facing a man-made disaster of a global scale, our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilization and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. Now I don't particularly want to get into the debate uh, of ecology at the moment, but it strikes me that each of us will actually have to make some sort of response to what Sir David Attenborough warned about. It's a significant warning, isn't it? Here's a respected person. He's asking us to take this seriously and do something about it. Well, do you believe him? How will you respond to this warning? Now, please open your Bibles back up to Isaiah chapter 66. You'll find it on page 754 in the church Bibles, Isaiah chapter 66, because here in the Bible, we have a warning about the end of the world as we know it. And it offers both a wonderful promise and a terrible warning. It presents two different futures, either eternal life of worshiping and enjoying God forever or eternal death. And the person warning us, according to Isaiah, is God himself. Look at the first verse. This is what the Lord says. Or verse 22, declares the Lord. This is God speaking to us. How will we respond to this news today? Some people have called this book of Isaiah the gospel of Isaiah. For here we read about the good news about Jesus Christ, promised sort of 700 years before he came. Isaiah lived in a time of great spiritual decline. It was a time where he foresaw the destruction of the nation. It was inevitable because the people kept refusing to listen to God's words. But there was also comfort for those who mourned over the spiritual and sorry state of the nation. Because of God's grace, there would still be a future for the people of God. In the very first chapter, uh, the Lord speaks to uh, the people who are like rebellious children. And he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. If you will come and listen and respond to the God who speaks his word of grace. And this future hope is all tied up to the promise of the birth of a Messiah King. How appropriate that we should uh, come to this chapter in this Advent season. We will be reading in the coming weeks uh, such passages as this. The people walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah promises that he will appear on the stage of human history with a remarkable birth. The virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, it says in Isaiah chapter 7. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then we get to the middle section of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49. And we're introduced to the same spirit uh, anointed person and they're described as the servant. And these servant songs promise that he would restore not only the state of Israel, but he'd also bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In chapter 53, we learn that this salvation would be brought about by an act of self-sacrifice, a substitutionary death. The servant will suffer in the place of sinners, bearing the punishment that their sins deserve, and then rising again to make people right with God. Now remember, all of this is written over 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And as we read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, it happens exactly as Isaiah saw it and prophesied about it. A remarkable birth. A life that displays the authority of a king. A person with great compassion for the crowds, uh, which he sees as like a sheep without a shepherd. He frees people from diseases. He frees them from oppression and despair. And then he purposefully travels to Jerusalem where he knew that he would be crucified. He prepared his disciples about what was going to happen. But as they walked to Jerusalem, he told them he had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in these final uh, chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 to 66, that we've been looking at this over the last few months, we see this final portrait of Jesus as the conquering king, that he will return again, and he will bring final and decisive salvation for his people. It will mean the overthrow of their enemies. It will be the complete eradication of evil from the world. And then we get to this final chapter, this closing chapter of Isaiah 66. And as a good gospel does, it presents us with the choice that we all must face. And it is the question of our eternal destinies, eternal life or eternal death. And I want to say to you with utmost seriousness today, where are you heading? You see, each one of us today will either be heaven-bound or hell-bound. Where are you heading? And I want to say to you this morning that it is possible to know the answer to that question today. Uh, there are two observable indicators given here. And the first one is this. What is our attitude to the Bible? What is our attitude to God's Word See, the chapter begins uh, between this contrast between the humble and the hardened. Look back at verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they come into being, declares the Lord? 
These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Throughout this book, Isaiah confronts us with the awesome holiness of God. Who are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the eternal God who created everything in the universe, the heavens and the earth. And so vast, so transcendent is this God that the heavens are like his throne and the earth, this massive planet, is just like his footstool, is where he puts his feet. And Isaiah lived in Jerusalem uh, where the temple that Solomon built was still there, but he, he knew that because of the sorry state of Israel that, that one day this temple would be destroyed as the nation would be uh, carted off into exile, which took place in 587 B.C. But also as he prophesied, he could see a day where the temple would be rebuilt again. But throughout it all, whether the temple was there or not, God was still the sovereign ruler over all of it. And this chapter begins with this reminder that God does not need our religious buildings. The God whose very hand made the heavens and the earth does not depend on us. No, we're the ones who totally depend on him. But the constant challenge down through the centuries is that we all get caught up with external religion. As if what matters to God is how we dress when we come to church or how pretty or impressive is the stonework and the architecture of our buildings or whether we've got an organ or not or whether there's a robed choir or robed clergy or religious titles and all that external claptrap. What God cares about is not that but our personal responsiveness to his words. That's what these opening verses say, don't they? That God is gazing from heaven. Well, where is this, where is this uh, temple? Is this home you're going to build for me? God, God can hardly see it. What, what is, where is God's gaze directed? It is those whose humble and contrite spirit tremble at his word. Now, what's our response to God's word today? Does it humble us? Do we, do we receive it with a sort of trembling reverence, knowing that we're being personally addressed by it, uh, from it by the, the most holy God? Is there within us a sort of a humble, submissive heart that, that wants to hear it and, and understand it and obey it? See, there are people who enjoy being religious and even very pious, but who do not tremble at God's words. It is quite possible today to come into church today and, and feel like you're really doing God a favor, being religious today, and actually your heart is not trembling at the word of God. We can proudly stand over it and decide which bits we like and which bits we're going to remain hardened to. But the warning here is that God is not impressed by external religion that is not connected to a humble response of our hearts to his word. See, look at verse 3. 
Whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. Whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and choose what displeases me. Under the old covenant of Moses, sacrifices of bulls and lambs and grain offerings were part of Israel's worship. But to engage in all these external forms with no desire to hear and respond to God's word, well, those acts of worship are, are like murder or breaking the neck of a dog, utterly pointless, or, or like offering pig's blood, or, or, or worshiping an idol, which was an abomination to God. Our attitude to God's word is a major indicator today of our eternal destiny. I'm not saying that our obedience to God's word saves us. Be in no doubt today that we are saved solely by the grace of God. We are saved by trusting what Jesus did for us on that cross. But our attitude to God's word reveals whether we are saved people or not. See, the humble obedience to God's word and desire to please him indicates we're truly part of his family. While those who refuse to listen to God and instead delight to choose to do the things that displease God, well, they reveal that they're not part of God's saved people at all. First indicator. Second indicator of where we're heading is this. What is our attitude to those who take God's word seriously? Look at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his words. Your own people will hate you and exclude you because of my name. They have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. This is clearly them um, making fun. Yet they will be put to shame. See, the people who love religion, who love being part of the established church or the religious establishment, but at the same time despise God's word, will also be those who are most passionately committed to hating those who tremble at God's word. It starts with mockery, it ends with exclusion. Jesus warned his disciples of this very thing. You will be hated by everyone, he says, because of me. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is exactly what happened in the history of the early church. You can read about it in the book of Acts. The greatest persecution came not from the state, but from the synagogue. This animosity has been played out Many times when spiritual renewal and reformation has caused people to return to taking the Bible seriously again. The religious establishment has always found ways of punishing and excluding those they dub as fundamentalists. This is what happened when the gospel was rediscovered at the Reformation. And in the 18th century, Great Awakening in, in, in Britain, where people who preached the gospel like Wesley and Whitfield were excluded from Anglican pulpits because they, people didn't want to hear the gospel that they preached. My great-grandfather, Richard Perkins, was thrown out of his liberal church when he became a Christian in the Welsh Revival. 
it, it didn't help that he was heckling the dodgy minister who was doubting the deity of Christ. Well, you'll get thrown out if you heckle the minister, and that will happen today as well. And it's still evident today in the controversies in the Church of Scotland and the Episcopal Church. Those who stood for faithfulness to God's word have been derided and excluded. But this passage gives a serious warning to those who seek to shame those who tremble at God's word. God's judgment begins amongst his people. Look at verse 6. Hear the that uproar from the city, hear the noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord replaying his enemies all they deserve. Jesus came on the scene and warned the people that their external religion was empty. It was an abomination to God. He went to the temple. He cleared out the Gentile temple courts that had become a corrupt marketplace instead of a place of worship. And this symbolic action put the put the nation on notice that their whole religious enterprise was under the judgment of God. How did the religious leaders react and respond? Was it with humility and contrition? No, it was with total hardness of heart, enacting the plan to kill Jesus. And from that point on, the final destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which took place in AD 70, was absolutely certain a day of uproar in the city, a noise in the temple. And it's never been rebuilt since. What is our attitude to those who take the Bible seriously, who love Jesus and talk about his words? That's the second big indicator of where we're heading today. What's our attitude to those who take the Bible seriously? Be warned if our hearts are tempted to, to despise and mock people like that. Don't harden your heart against the word of God today. Today represents a great opportunity. You are hearing the word of God. It has been read to you. It's being preached to you. And today you can respond to it, but there's a very real warning today that you could equally harden your hearts against it and step further away from the eternal possibility of heaven and step nearer to the eternal possibility of hell. Don't harden your hearts today. Even as this chapter warns of persecution for those who respond to God's gospel news about Jesus, Isaiah promises the certainty of great rejoicing and comfort for those who humbly receive God's word. See, God is going to do something miraculous to bring about a brand new people from Zion. Look, this is what verses 7 to 17 is about, the joy and comfort of Zion's newborn children. Look at verse 7. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who's ever heard of such things? Who's ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? And the picture here is an astonishing picture for any woman who's given birth. 
There is Jerusalem like a mother who will give birth to a new people. And it's obviously going to be a work of God, a great miracle as this baby will appear almost without any effort, without any pushing, without any pain. Before the labor pains begin, a baby son appears. And not just one child, but a whole new people that God will create. Sociologists have noted how extraordinary was the start and growth of the Christian church out of Judaism. How did this monotheistic faith that met to worship uh, on, a, on a Saturday suddenly start worshiping this man called Jesus as God and start worshiping a meeting on a Sunday? Something completely remarkable must have happened for such a dramatic change to happen 2,000 years ago to give birth to the Christian church. And the answer to the apostles was simply this. It's answered by this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only that can explain it. This risen and ascended Christ pours out God's Spirit on His church. And so even before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, you have the creation of the Christian church in AD 33 as the new people of God. A people made up of both Jews and non-Jews, of Gentiles who trust Jesus. And this would all be birthed out of Jerusalem, as indeed it was. The disciples appointed by Jesus to be his apostles would, would then be those who would be sent out into the world to gather the nations, calling on people to respond to this glorious gospel. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew 28, doesn't he? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. And he tells the disciples in Acts chapter 1, uh, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Spirit and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Did you see that Great Britain got mentioned in the Bible there? Uh, verse, uh, verse 19, to distant islands. I guess Britain counts there, doesn't it? Pretty distant from Jerusalem. Look at us. Here we are in Scotland. It's very cold, but the gospel's here. This great commission actually marks the arrival of the end of human history as we know it. It is the last great event before the end in Isaiah chapter 66, the calling of the nations through the glorious gospel. Look at verse 19. I'll set a sign among them and I will send them of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers. Perhaps that hints that there's threat and danger as we go with the gospel. To Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial, ceremonially clean vessels. You see, as the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the nations, people of the nations will be gathered to become part of Christ's church. A newborn people gathered to God through the gospel of his grace, through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
it's described here as a great harvest of souls. Gathered as worshippers and priests to enjoy God forever. And they come by every means of transport. Every means of communication, they will come. And they're going to enjoy the closest of relationships with God. They will see his glory. Now this world is pretty glorious. It's a pale reflection of the glory of God. But there's a day coming when we will see his glory. And you've got a beautiful picture to those who are distressed in this life. God promises in verse 14, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. But as I close, we must see that there are two eternal destinies presented here in the closing verses. There's heaven and there's hell. See, this closing chapter is full of joy and comfort for those who tremble at God's word. For all who humbly and receive and believe the glorious promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise of being eternally part of the new heavens and the new earth. But this book closes with the sobering warning that there's another eternal destiny for those who refuse to listen to God's word, who refuse to respond to the offer of the gospel. And here is the scary possibility. If you go through your life refusing to hear God's word, refusing to respond to the offer of the gospel, God will give you exactly what you want for all eternity, eternally to be separated from the people of God. And you will face the judgment of God for your sins. Verse 15, see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He'll bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Ultimately, all wrongs will be judged. There'll be a judgment of God for, the, for people's personal sins uh, including those who've oppressed the people of God. And their eternity is described with the shocking imagery of verse 24. It's like the rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. It's the place of dead bodies, of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. I want you to see today that this is not a scary preacher who's trying to scare you. This is, do you see this is what the Bible says? I'm, not, I'm just telling you what it says, aren't I? This is what God has to say to us today. Jesus, the most loving person that there ever was, spoke most frequently of this reality of hell. Why did he do that? Because he doesn't want you to go there. He wants you to respond to the good news of the gospel. He's born hell in his own body on the tree so that you could be forgiven. 
Have you come to him to say sorry for your sins? Have you asked that God will forgive you because of the work of Christ? You know what? Each one of us must make a personal response today of what we will do with this gospel. One day Jesus will return. It will be a terrible day of judgment. It will be a glorious day of salvation. I guess that's why we want to share the good news and invite people to our carol services, isn't it? Because this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus tells us to say. And because we love people, we, we want to invite them. Where will you spend eternity? Have you responded to the offer of the gospel? With Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is joy. There is comfort. There is peace. There is fellowship. There is glory. Apart from him, there is anger. There is fire. There is separation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you want to know how to do that, come and speak to me. I'll be at the back for about 10 minutes or so. There's a prayer team here that would love to chat with you. Uh, there's a booklet you can take away. There are people who'd love to help you. Do not harden your hearts. But humble yourself and come to Christ this day. Let's pray.